All right, good morning. I'm really glad to be back here with you again, and I'm glad that you showed up. Some of you actually knew I was going to preach, and you're still here. Thanks. I appreciate that. Some of you, it's your second time here, and you got such a great sermon last week from our pastor, and you're like, hey, did they, did they bait and switch me? Who's this short guy with a receding hairline up there? I want Jeremy back. You'll have him next week, so uh, have no fear. But he mentioned something today. He mentioned that uh, this is the third week in a sermon series about grace. And uh, if you've been here all three weeks, you know that in the first week we talked about, uh, we began this story, biblical story, the most famous short stories of all time, about the prodigal son, and we talked about God's grace for the rebellious. The second half of that story came last week in God's grace for the religious, and today we're going to see a story about God's grace for the rejected. And so that's where we're going today in Luke chapter 7. And before I do that, I just want to say thank you to Derek and Caroline and Ty and Tyler and Brent and Ricky and everybody that helps um, make this morning uh, go the way it does in the room. Um, Pastor Jeremy mentioned community groups. He also mentioned serve teams. And one of the things I've found about getting up entirely too early, working entirely too hard, and staying entirely too late uh, with a serve team is that it's so worth it a hundred times over. Because you, you kind of get a, a bit more of the, I guess, the underground community of Coastway it being a part of a serve team. And those of you who are, know. So my encouragement to those of you who are kind of on the Coastway pathway is, hey, if serve team sounds like something you need to do, don't hesitate. Find somebody that's, uh, you know, somebody like Pastor Jeremy, somebody like me, someone like Ethan, somebody like Derek, and, and say, hey, where, where can I serve? What can I do next? It, it will bless you in ways that are just so unexpected. Um, and you'll have multi-generational fellowship that goes even beyond your community group. So there's so many ways to have community. I just wanted to put that plug out there. And thank you guys for serving us so well this morning and setting the mood. Um, today, again, grace for the rejected. We're in Luke chapter 7. And I want to begin with this idea that rejection is both everywhere and nowhere in our culture today. Here's a little history. I'm, I'm a history nerd, so here's a little history of what I mean by this, how we've gotten to this moment we're in today. I'm only going to go back to the 70s and 80s, and of many subcultures that emerged in the 70s and 80s, one of those is what might be known as freak culture. In the 70s and 80s, it gave us things like punk rock. It gave us hair bands. It gave us the 80s coming-of-age movies. It gave us the, the, the gothic uh, style of dress that you know a lot of people... Uh, still today are, are doing. It gave us things like parachute pants, and it even gave us hip-hop. What do all these things have in common? All of these things were levying critiques against mainstream culture and celebrating things that made mainstream culture uncomfortable. They celebrated ideas that were rejected. And behind that wasn't just ideas, it was people who felt rejected. And those people provided the cultural power that got behind the internet in the 1990s. We might say the internet is a technical thing. It's, it's largely government. No, what provided the cultural power that made guys like Mark Andreessen rich, that made uh, guys like Steve Jobs rich, is people who felt rejected looking for other people who felt the same way. And that's what gave us the internet. The internet on itself wasn't enough, and so in the 2000s we began to receive Things like Facebook, things like MySpace, social media was born. It got to its strength in the 2010s. You've got Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter, which is now X, all of that sort of stuff. And what the goal of this was to connect people, connect people so they could find acceptance, so they could deal with their rejection. 
And we can kind of see, you know, that this has kind of backfired on our culture a little bit, especially in the young minds of children and teens. You get into the, 20s, the 2020s, and we're still searching for acceptance. And what do we have? We have diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it shows up in academia. It shows up in business culture. And what is it we're trying to do? We're all trying to deal with this very human aversion to rejection. Now, I want to note for the church that there are both legitimate and illegitimate critiques in all of these movements. And what our job is as a church is to find those legitimate critiques and to amplify those and to apply biblical response to that and to do so with humility and compassion. And that takes a lot of listening and a lot less anger. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about rejection. And this little history lesson, what it's told us is that there's a group, there's a hashtag, there's a Discord server. Ask your uh, gamer nephew about that if you don't know what that is. There's a political uh, party, an ideology, a flag, a symbol for everybody. Our culture has fewer excuses than ever before in history to deal with rejection. But it's everywhere. The longing for acceptance still persists. It's only intensified. Rejection is everywhere we look. So let's put the history book down and let's look at our own hearts. Where have we encountered rejection? Have you been rejected by a date? Anybody ever been cut from the team? You don't have to raise your hand. Had your application to your first choice school denied? No one here from Coastal can say that. You all got in your first choice school, right? Absolutely. But maybe you're on that, on that list. Had your credit denied for that cell phone plan? Anybody had that problem? Uh, credit denied for a car, for a house? Hey, let's get real serious. Have you been left by a spouse who deemed you insufficient because you didn't meet their needs? You have children who don't call or visit? Maybe you're a student and the bullying follows you home from school because it's on social. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. There's nowhere to hide. Have you been abused, abandoned? These days, likely there's someone within the sound of my voice either in the room or online. Maybe you've been trafficked. Maybe you don't feel like one of the girls and you don't look like one of the guys. But here, here's a plot twist, as Jeremy likes to say. Maybe you've answered no to all these questions, and yet you still feel isolated, misunderstood, and paranoid that the people you surround yourself with who all accept you are going to figure out you're an imposter and reject you for it. Why is rejection everywhere we look? Why does it hurt so much? What is it that we're all longing for? And we might say, I just want to be accepted for who I am, but that's what we've been chasing forever, for time immemorial. So maybe acceptance isn't what we need. Acceptance isn't what's going to satisfy that longing in our hearts. There must be something else, something that punk rock and the internet and DEI can't provide. Now, if you've been around for the last few weeks, you know what the answer is. The answer is grace. That is what we really need. And Pastor Jeremy's done a really great job defining grace over the last couple weeks. He defines it as receiving something really good when what you deserve is something really bad. To put it another way, grace is an undeserved gift. And your impulse may be to say, you know, I reject the idea that I deserve something really bad, and I reject the idea that I need an undeserved gift. You might simply say, just give me what I deserve. Accept me for who I am. Celebrate me. Affirm me. Give me what I have coming to me. And others of you in the room, you might be ready to get out your Romans 3.23 hammer. 
Let's keep it in the pocket for just a moment. Let's take that idea and let's take it to its logical end. Okay, so you deserve something good. What is it that you deserve that's good? Has anybody ever taken the time to try to write down a list of everything that you think you deserve? I tried it. It's actually kind of hard. <laughs> and you get to the end of the list and the question is, okay, did, did, did I get everything, right? Did I miss anything? And can you bring the receipts? Can you prove that everything on that list is something you deserve? And what happens when you get everything on that list? What then? Are we going to be satisfied? How do we actually know we got everything on that list? No one's ever taken that idea, I think, to that logical end the way that I've just described. And I hope that you can see by that little exercise that it's, it's, it's spitting against the wind. It's grasping the wind. And even if you could quantify it with that much certainty, there's still one more question I'd ask you. Why stop with just what you deserve? Why not ask for more out of this life? You see, the most optimistic outlook might conclude that what we deserve is a type of acceptance that overlooks all of my faults in favor of the better aspects of my character. But you know what that leaves us doing? Constantly working to prove to the other folks that we want acceptance from that we deserve that acceptance. That's exhausting. Surely, that's not the best we can come up with. And here's a secret I want to let you in on. Grace is actually better than acceptance. And, and I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to give you the sermon in one sentence. Grace for the rejected is better because it comes from God. It delivers forgiveness and is received by faith in Jesus. And we're going to dig into this story here in Luke chapter 7, and what we're going to see is in this book written all about providing certainty about who Jesus is. That's why the book was written. And in this chapter that gives us four social rejects of different types who all find their answer in the person of Jesus Christ, we're going to look at that fourth person. You had a Roman intruder in the first few verses. You had a widow who was grieving after losing her last male heir. You have a prisoner who's doubting, that prisoner being John the Baptist, right? He was kind of a has-been popular guy. He had said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease, but he didn't realize that that would put him in prison. He was on dark times, and he's doubting, Jesus, are you really the one, right? Is it worth it for me to be going through all this? Are you the one we're looking for? And all of these different social rejects found their answer in the person of Jesus, and that will be no different for the social reject we're going to look at beginning in verse 36. And this is a public sinner. And we're going to see this public sinner, and we're going to understand Three ways that grace is better than acceptance as we look at this. So let's look together in verse 36. We're going to read, and we're going to read in verse 36 where it says, One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Before we know what this woman's going to do, I want us to recognize that we now have the three major players in our story. We have an introduction to the Pharisee, who is the one who's throwing this special public party. It's not unusual for folks to come over to the house and recline at table. Um, our table's not really set up for reclining, but that's what they did in, in this day and age. And then you have Jesus, who's the honored guest. Now, this is early in the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisee, so he's not calling them hypocrites and snakes yet, and they're not saying he has a demon and trying to kill him yet. This is early on, and as a matter of fact, this party is all about them figuring out whether or not they want to do that, right? 
Here's this new teacher on the block. He's got a lot of really profound things to say. There's reports that he's doing miracles. What's his angle? Is he, is he friend or foe? Do we trust him? But there's a third guest, and this is an uninvited guest, a woman who gets two labels right there in our verse. She is a woman of the city, and she's a sinner. And there's been a lot of speculation about how that indicates what kind of sin she was involved in, and I think that misses the point. We don't really need to speculate, mainly because Luke doesn't tell us. But really, what we're seeing here is that her sin is public, right? She's a public sinner, woman of the city, public sinner, right? And what that means is that her sin is so public and so offensive to the mainstream culture that they have rejected her. They've rejected her from society as a hopeless case, defective and unredeemable. And in reality, again, we don't have to speculate as to her sin because sin is kind of like Lay's potato chips. I bet you can't commit just one, right? And if we take Adultery, right? Let's just use that as an example, which is the speculation most people come to. An adulterous person is probably lying to protect their story. They're certainly not honoring their parents. They might have to steal, right? Covetousness is what's drawn them toward this. They're definitely probably taking God's name in vain because they're pretending to be something that they're not, right? A a Christ follower who's actually living in sin. Um, They're certainly worshiping idols. There's a lot of commandments that you're breaking by breaking just one, and that's really what we probably should expect, that her public sin is in many arenas, and it's earned her a reputation that's resulted in her being a reject of society. And so this is a familiar place that many of us might find ourselves feeling and thinking, and what I want to do is show the hope that Jesus Christ provides to this woman. And what we see here is uh, that Sometimes our rejection is tied to our sin. And that's a really hard thing for us to admit in our culture. So if you want to kind of amen that in your heart and not say it out loud, your secret's safe with me. I know the rejection I feel, the times I feel the most isolated, rejected, and vulnerable are usually when it's, it's warranted for me. That's been my experience. But in this situation, we have this woman doing this, and she's uninvited, right? But it's not unusual for her to be here. This type of dinner given in honor of a, of a very public person like Jesus would have been normal for uninvited guests to be there, to line up on the walls, poor social rejects, there to hear and there to maybe get some, some leftovers at the end, right? But what we realize about this woman is she's not there for leftovers. She's there because of Jesus. So let's keep reading. We're going to finish verse 37. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, before we even get to the reaction from the Pharisee, let me ask you, uh, how do you feel about this? How would you have reacted if you'd have been in the room? There's a lot of speculation from people who are trying to find fault with Jesus that she was making advances toward him. But again, I ask, why do we have to go that way in this text? We don't. What is it we're really seeing? We're seeing a woman who's obviously not concerned with improving her social standing. Nothing that she does here is going to make anybody else in the room think differently about her. These other people, they're going to continue to think what they think about her public sin. She is not worried about them. Her focus is solely on one person, And that's Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to take away from what we're seeing in her actions. 
If we look closely, what we're going to see is that she learns the first reason why grace is better than acceptance. And I want us to, to see this. First of all, this morning, acceptance comes from other people, but grace comes from God. Acceptance comes from other people, but grace comes from God. Now, what we don't know about her is that she'd made the connection between Jesus and God. By the way, at this church, we believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that he's God the Son, that he's God in the flesh. And everything he does here is going to prove that that's at least his claim, right? So that's the thing we believe here at Coastway. But we're not sure she yet understood that connection. But we do know she saw him as the source of something only God can do. He can provide grace. And both Jesus' behavior and his claim to authority later is going to indicate that this whole text turns on that idea. What is it you're willing to believe about Jesus? But this idea isn't just evident in her actions. We also see it in the Pharisee's response. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, you see the question, who is Jesus right there? He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now keep in mind these are the Pharisees' private thoughts. He says to himself. That means he is thinking this. He is not verbalizing it. Now the Pharisees' private thoughts, just like the woman's public acts, they are preoccupied with the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Who is this guy? And that's the hinge on which the entire story turns. The answer, of course, is that Jesus is God who has the right to forgive sins and knows everything about what's going on in our hearts. But... He's about to prove that in his response. Let's pick this up in verse 40. We're going to read a couple verses in a row here. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That's just a form of currency in the day, similar to our dollar. And the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, he knows, are forgiven. He can do something about it. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Wow. Shots fired. But before we assume that fisticuffs are afoot, let's slow down. Let's unpack what's really happening here. I'm going to submit to you that Jesus is actually, by this, this little monologue, being very compassionate. Jesus is showing compassion because what does he do at the beginning? He calls the Pharisee by name. That's something new. He calls him Simon. He's no longer just the Pharisee. He calls him by name. That lets us know Jesus is pursuing. He's chasing after Simon's heart. Then he tells a story, don't miss this, in which both debtors are forgiven. The one who has the big debt and the one who has the big debt both have a big problem, and they're both forgiven. Don't miss that. His grace is not limited by our private doubts any more than it is by our public sin. Jesus is going to pursue you no matter how far your self-righteousness may take you from your need for forgiveness. That's what we see in this. And then we see that he's aiming for understanding. You see, Jesus would often tell parables, Matthew 13, 13 tells us this, where his intent was actually to 
basically conceal the meaning of the parable from the self-righteous people in the room, and then he would explain it to the poor and the outcast. That's not what's happening here. Jesus wants Simon to understand this parable, and then he not only shows compassion, but Jesus reveals his identity. He proves that he knows both the public sin of the woman and the private thoughts of Simon. He then claims the authority to do something that only God can do, which is to forgive sins. And that gets us to our second reason that grace is better this morning. It's because acceptance promises tolerance, but grace delivers forgiveness. Look at verse 47 again. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I want us to think about the difference between tolerance and forgiveness and how this might play out at a Mexican restaurant. You're out with a friend, with a colleague, with a spouse, with a significant other. They're sitting across the table from you, and maybe you're me and you have a beard. And what do you do, right? It's appetizer time. What do we get? We get the queso and chips, right? That's what we do. I got the queso and chips. I get the, the, the chori queso over here at El Patio. Really good, mainly because I'm the only one that likes it, so my kids won't eat it, and I get the whole thing to myself. But you go with the chip into the queso, you come out with the chip to the queso, you go to your mouth, and the worst thing that could happen happens. A drop falls somewhat south of the beard, lands right here while you eat, and you're none the wiser for it. Bad, bad times. Guys with beards in here, you know what I'm talking about? The person sitting across from you, they are now in a dilemma, aren't they? <laughs> I, have, I have a choice. I see this queso in Caleb's beard, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? I got a couple of options, right? I could just not tell you and try to get through dinner and ignore it and look past it, right? I could try to get through with a straight face, but we know that's not going to work. There's other people in the room. They're going to see it. And maybe I'm there. We got to have a serious conversation, right? I need to know what's going on in his heart. He's going to give me advice you know what? It's really hard to take someone seriously with a spot of queso in their beard, right? Well, what's happening if we choose that route? Well, what we're doing is we're trying to provide tolerance, and it doesn't work really well. The other extreme is we could just start pointing and laughing and making fun of them publicly, right? Drawing attention from the rest of the room. Everybody starts pointing and laughing. He doesn't know. What are we doing there? Well, that's cancel culture. That's shame. That's not going to work either. What is grace going to do? Grace discreetly helps you Rearrange your queso situation. Hey, you got a little something-something in your beard. Get that, right? And depending on your relationship, you may help them get it, right? You know, use your discretion there. <laughs> and just for the record, if you ever end up at a Mexican restaurant with me, let me tell you the outcome I'd prefer. I'd prefer to receive grace and finish dinner just as if I'd never had queso in my beard. Now, that's essentially the difference between tolerance and grace here, but I want you also to see the weight of forgiveness that's in our text. And we're going to do that by learning a $5 word, a $5 Christian word that actually is a really good one to know. This word is justification. Anybody ever heard that word, justification? If you've been going to church any amount of time, you've probably heard the word, but the question is, what does it mean? And I think I found the easiest way, this is not original with me, to understand this word. To be justified is for it to be just as if I'd never sinned. And that's what justification is. And we actually see this in the story. Go, go back to verse 42. What does he say? Jesus is telling the story, and he says, when they could not pay, he canceled 
the debt of both. Now, notice he said canceled and not written off. There's obviously a major difference between a write-off and a cancellation of debt. A write-off is a tax break for the person that you owe money to. It benefits them. It doesn't benefit you, right? That write-off stays on your credit report for, what? what is it, 10 years? And everybody who ever wants to lend you money is going to be having to look at that write-off to determine if you are creditworthy. That is not the same as cancellation. And that's not what happens in this text. This debt cancellation is an example of justification. These debtors were made just as if they never owed the money. And this is the forgiveness that Jesus offers the rejected. And this is what Paul talked about when he mentioned debt cancellation in Colossians 2. Read this with me, Colossians 2.13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wow, that's great. <laughs> My sin has been canceled, not written off. Let's dig into that. Sin, what is it? It's, it's fundamentally a debt. And to whom do we owe it? God himself, right? And that debt, which we can't pay, by the way, has legal demands. Romans 6.23 describes it this way. For the wages of sin is death. And those legal demands demand that I die for my sin. Alan, that's strong language. God said it, not me. Hear it, right? The good news is, though, Jesus earned the right to fully and finally cancel that debt because he nailed it to the cross when he died on the cross. Many people don't understand that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just a nice gesture. When Jesus died on the cross, he had earned a record of righteousness that he took with him to the cross. And while he was there, spiritually, he traded that righteousness for all the sin of those who would trust in him, and he buried that sin in death when he died. And what happens is you give Jesus your sin by faith, and you receive from him his righteousness. We call that atonement, right? Substitutionary atonement. Now, another $5 word. You're, you're welcome. But this is what happens in this justification. And the question that we need to grapple with is, do I believe this? And that's the rub. That's what leads us to our third reason that grace is better than acceptance. It's because it's, acceptance is a transaction. Grace is a gift received by faith in Jesus Christ. This is how this works in the economy of acceptance. Tolerance must be mutual. I will tolerate you as long as you tolerate me. But what we really mean is I'll tolerate you to the level you tolerate me. Everyone's got their limits. And if one person begins to think that they are tolerating more than the other party in the transaction, that's when things get real ugly real fast. What I've just described is the modern cultural moment in which we live. You wonder why all the anger back and forth? It's because we're trying to tolerate one another. We're not offering grace to one another. And that's the moment in which we live. Tolerance is acceptance, and that's not what happens when we receive grace from Jesus. Let's see it in action in these last three verses in our chapter. It says that he said to her, your sins are forgiven. That's the second time Jesus has said this. He's letting this woman know personally 
Yes, your sins are forgiven. Then in verse 49, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? This isn't a glowing endorsement of Jesus. This is someone calling bull on what Jesus has just said to this woman. Verse 50, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice that Jesus doesn't back down on his offer of forgiveness even when the crowd expresses their disapproval. He's careful to reassure her that it is her faith in him, not what she has to offer, that is the guarantee of her forgiveness. Faith, not works. Grace, not acceptance. Notice the crowd's question, though. That, like the Pharisees' private thoughts, like the woman's bold actions, all of these things hinge on the question, who is Jesus, which brings us full circle to the response that we need to have. You see, God's grace is better than acceptance because it doesn't depend on fickle people to accept us. It rather stands firmly on God's unwavering love for you because he made you and he is willing to save you, your maker and savior. It doesn't merely look over and tolerate our sin, but it forgives our sin, leaving us justified and free to move forward unchained by our sin. And it's based on faith in the only one who can do anything about it, the only one who has the authority to forgive, because he canceled your debt by paying for it on the cross. It all comes down to the man, the man Jesus So this morning, if you're going to accept this forgiveness, you've got to ask the same question that the people asked in verse 49. Who is this that forgives sins? And you need to believe what the woman believed, that it's Jesus that forgives sins. God the Son, who came in the flesh precisely for this purpose, to pay the debt for our sins so that He could cancel them and not cancel us. Now you might think, I don't know where to start. The weight of rejection is so great. There's so many things about my life. I'm dissatisfied. I want to change everything. But now you're telling me about this, Jesus. Where do I start? Take all the things you think are wrong with your life and all the things you think you need to change and set them over here and start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. And this morning, if that's where you are and you walk away from here with nothing else today, walk away with this. You need to believe in Jesus. And what is it that I need to believe, you might ask? Well, I can give you at least three things you should believe. First of all, you need to believe that Jesus knows. Because he's God, he knows everything. And that means he knows your secrets. He knows your pain. And he knows what you need to find the redemption that you seek. You can stop hiding. You can stop pretending. You can be free from the fear of rejection. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. Oftentimes, we forget that God made us in His image. You are special to God like a child. And He's not going to deny us in public just to protect His reputation. He won't give up on us just because we doubt. He loves the public sinner and the private doubter both. Jesus cares because He loves you. He knows, He cares, and Jesus forgives. He forgives because He took the punishment you deserve. This part is probably easier for the public center to identify with, just to be honest. 
Because we don't need convincing that our sin is big and our rejection is real. But we have to remember the parable wasn't like spoken to the woman. She was there, but the parable was meant for Simon. And you see, the thing that we might misunderstand if we don't look closely is that Jesus didn't intend for Simon to identify with the debtor that had the smallest debt. His error was not loving enough for being forgiven a small debt. His error was not seeing how big his debt really was. Simon was the big debtor, just like the woman. His private doubt put him in just as perilous a position in eternity as her public sin. And those of us who feel more like Simon will do well to inspect our hearts and reckon with just how much Jesus stands ready to forgive us of. Christians, if you're in the room, how much have you been forgiven? How much love are you demonstrating to your Savior? You see, this truth, this story, the reality within it is not meant to be left behind in our walk. It will do us well to remember just how much we've been forgiven as we endeavor to do things like what our pastor's been encouraging us to do, to bless Frank, right? As we begin prayerfully and listen intently and engage relationally and serve sacrificially and share clearly. See, I'm learning it, Pastor. As we do all of that for our friends, our relatives, our acquaintances, our neighbors, our classmates and coworkers, We need to go with that and we need to remember these things because we're going to be talking to folks struggling with the same rejection that we dealt with in our own lives. It should help us lead with compassion just like Jesus did and persuade with much love and humility knowing that we were also forgiven much. Don't forget it, church. To the reject in the room, how much forgiveness do you think you need? We're not going to sing it now, but there's an old song called Jesus Paid It All. And my question to you is, do you believe that? Will you trust him this morning to give you a grace that is better than acceptance? As we prepare to sing, if you're saying, yes, I believe it, that Jesus knows that he cares, that he forgives, I trust that he's forgiven me. If that's your reality, what has happened to you this morning is you've been converted. And if God has saved you this morning, you may need to know what's next. The thing you need is to get surrounded by people who have been saved the same way you have and be encouraged into this discipleship by community. One easy way to make that connection, there are these cards outside on the table. They say next steps. Just fill one of these out. And what we're going to do is we're going to connect you with the community of Coastway so that we can walk together slowly and patiently with you through that process. So this morning, I would encourage you to ask yourself, is today the day that I have finally believed and finally trusted in Jesus? And I pray that that's happened in someone's heart today. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for your word. We're thankful for the compassion that you give us in it. Lord, I'm constantly paranoid that I'm not even displaying as much compassion in the preaching of this as, as you, Lord Jesus, displayed to this woman and to this doubting belief, uh, Pharisee. So Lord, I pray, God, that the warmth of the Holy Spirit would overshadow us all, that the certainty that you know and that you care and that you forgive would overwhelm our hearts. 
and that it would stir us to, to greater love and thanksgiving and humility. And Lord, that it would stir some for the very first time to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Would you move among us? We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.